Lord, may I speak, and may we all hear in your name. Amen. I have a confession I want to make to you all. I am absolutely hopeless when it comes to technology. I am essentially a Luddite. Um, I can mostly turn things on, uh, but not all the time. Um, when I do occasionally get things turned on, I very often don't know what to do with the things that I've now turned on to get them to do the things that I want them to do. Uh, my husband Jonathan is very tech savvy, and so he set up all the technology in our house. Uh, but when he's not around, I am constantly unable to do the things that I need to do. Uh, for example, to change the dashboard clock in the car, uh, to reprogram the thermostat in our apartment, uh, to operate the remote control. I'm always texting him, how do you turn our cable on again? Um, I can't get Netflix to show up on the TV anymore. How does the Roku go? Right. If only this, I don't know, is anyone, I'm, I'm okay, a, a couple of you, right? If only this technology issue, like, stopped the technology, right? But unfortunately, it expands into, you know, every orb of life. <laughs> Somebody please tell me how to do what I want to do, please. In 12-step recovery programs, people will sometimes say, as an alcoholic, I feel like I was born without a life instruction manual. And I'm like, tell me about it, me too. Uh, but what I also want to say is that, in my opinion, it's not just alcoholics and addicts who have that experience. Pretty much everybody, if we're honest, is like, please tell me what to do. We all long, don't we? We all long for operating instructions, right? We all long, or maybe most of us long, I don't want to be, there may be some people here like, no, I've got to figure it out. But most people, most people long for like a detailed bulleted list of things to do, responses to make to the questions that we have. How am I going to find a job? Which job should I take? I hate my job. What should I do? What do I want in a partner? Once I know what I want in a partner, where can I find that partner? Like exactly and precisely, where can I find him or her? We're having a kid. I have no idea which of the two million parenting approaches we should take. Right? All of us long for operating instructions. It's everybody. And I think it can get even more frustrating if, if you're a person of faith, because some of us have this default sense, maybe because some well-meaning pastor or Sunday school teacher taught us this. We have this default sense that if, we, like, if we're with God, if we believe in God, if we're aligned with God, then God will give us very clear instructions on what to do, right? Um, but I'm here to tell you, and you know this, or maybe you don't know this yet, God rarely seems to operate that way. The gospel story we just heard Katie read comes from the Bible right before the time Jesus is arrested and killed. And he knows he's on the way out, um, and he's telling his followers how they should live in his absence. And, um, you know... You, you think about those disciples, like, okay, Jesus, we know you're on the, we know you're not going to be with us anymore in the same way that you have been. So we are ready for very clear instructions about what to do in your absence. Um, and we're ready for the bullet points. Um, but Jesus does not give them an instruction manual. He actually tells them this story among a couple other ones. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, really? Another 
freaking story? <laughs> You're leaving, Jesus. We are actually, there are very few times where this is, this is real, but we are actually open to the didactic here. We are open to a lecture. We don't usually learn by lectures, but at this point, you're not going to be here next week. Tell us exactly what to do. But what we get is another story about the kingdom of God. You heard the story. A friend of mine loves to retell gospel stories in creative ways, and he sort of tells it like this. A wealthy businessman takes a trip. It's going to be a long time until he returns. And so he decides that he needs to find someone to be in charge of his business interests while he's away. You think, I've got some money to manage while I'm away. You might find a financial planner. You might find someone with a CPA after their name. But no, he calls in to his house. He calls in three folks. He calls in the gardener. He calls in the maid. And he calls in the guy who changes his oil at the Jiffy Lube. And just like that, he calls them in. He calls them in and he gives them he entrusts his property to them. This is the story that Jesus is telling. That is how the English translation renders it. It says, he gives them his property to manage. But the literal translation of what Jesus says is this. He gives them his entire living. The boss puts his entire living into the hands of these three people. Just sit for that. Sit with that for a second. These are three totally unsuspecting people Three totally unqualified people, the gardener, the maid, and the auto mechanic, right? They are not qualified to manage money. And he calls them in and gives them his entire living. This is like the pilot for a first century reality TV show, okay? <laughs> See what they do. The maid gets five talents, the uh, Jiffy Lube manager gets two talents, and the gardener gets one talent. Now maybe, how many, if you, have, if you grew up in the church, you have heard sermons on talents before, Yes? Some of you are like, we have no idea what a talent is, because maybe you aren't part of, you were part of church. That's all. Let me just break it down for you. Let me tell you what a talent is not. A talent, in the biblical sense, is not what we have come to understand a talent to be in sort of modern, uh, modern usage. So now we're like, a talent is like the energy I have to give. It's like my Myers-Briggs or uh, Strengths Finder typology. It's, it's like, it's, like it's, my, it's, it's the gift I bring to the table in some general sense. Uh, that's all great, and we love those kinds of talents. But in the Bible, a talent is money. It's cold, hard cash, right? It's money. And to be specific, a talent is around 75 pounds of pure silver, which, you know, that's a lot of silver these days. At that point in time, 75 pounds of silver, one talent, would be the equivalent of about 15 years' worth of salary. Okay? That's a significant amount of a cold hard dang, yeah? So that makes the reality show even more interesting, all right? So in comes the maid. She gets five talents in her hand. That's 75 years worth of salary into her hands all at once. All right, just to break it down even further, I looked online this weekend. The average per capita, per capita, right? So this is an average. Obviously, a lot of folks who make a lot less than this, and a lot of people who make a lot more than this. Uh, the average per capita income in Chicago is $30,000 a year. 75, 75 years would be $2.25 million handed to the maid all at once, right? You can do the math for the other ones, right? And then the businessman leaves, right? Leaves apparently nothing in his pockets, leaves them, entrusts his whole living, his whole property to them. 
Well, you heard how the story turned out, right? Katie read the story, you heard it. The maid starts buying stocks like she's Warren Buffett. Um, you know Warren Buffett, one of the richest guys, one of the smartest financial investors, knows the stock market. She starts investing stocks. She's never had a class in economics, ever. She's actually never had any money because she's a maid. But she is apparently a very good investor. So at the end of this time, she doubles her investment. Five talents become ten. All right? The auto mechanic is like, I am not going to get into that kind of speculative stocks and bonds and kind of stuff. But I do know the uh, oil change business, the oil change business. I'm from the South, I say oil. Uh, <laughs> the oil change business. And so he's like, I'm going to take these two talents and I'm going to open uh, a, a Jiffy Lube on the other side of town. I'm going to open a second shop. Uh, and folks on that other side of town are so excited, they don't have to drive across the city to get their freaking oil changed anymore. So his business just booms, right? Two talents becomes four. During this time, just imagine the gardener. He is extremely cautious, and he watches as the other two servants sort of recklessly risk their share of the money, and he thinks they are going to get it when the boss returns. I don't know if you heard in the story when Katie read it, but it says that the gardener, or the person with one talent, is scared of his boss. We were talking about this this week at staff, and his fear seems to exacerbate the anxiety that he already has, the anxiety of not knowing what to do with the money. And he thinks, I don't have any idea what to do with the money, but I am a gardener, and so I do know how to dig a hole. And so that's what he does. He takes his talent and goes out in the backyard in the middle of the night and digs a hole in the ground and buries his talent where it will be safe. Eventually the boss comes back and says, um, how did y'all do? How did you manage my uh, entire living while I was away? And the maid steps forward. She's a bit shy. She's like, well, I actually got quite good with the stock market. <laughs> Here are ten talents. And he's like, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done so well with what I've given you. I'm going to give you even more. The Jiffy Lube manager steps forward. So I took a gamble. I didn't do stocks, but I started a new business. Two became four. Same kind of thing. The, the Jiffy Lube manager gets a promotion in the company. And then the gardener, who I like to imagine during all this risky behavior is like in the sidelines sort of smiling, a smug smile, like just imagining how they're going to get it when he gets home and how he's going to get kind of accolades because he's been so responsible with his talent. And he's sure that the boss will be especially pleased with him. So the gardener steps forward and says, I didn't want anything to happen to your stuff. I knew it was really important. So I did the very smart and safe thing. I kept it safe and buried it in the ground. Because that's what you do with important stuff. You keep it safe. And the boss is like, are you kidding me? I gave you everything I have, and you did nothing with it? This is the sort of troubling part of the story, for me at least. The boss is like, you're fired. Um, clean out your desk. Clean out your tool shed. But before you leave, you know what? Go get a shovel and go out in the backyard and dig up that one talent and give it to somebody who knows what to do with it. So here we are looking for operating instructions in life. And this is one of the stories that Jesus leaves us with. Um, I just want to say, let me just say this. Um, this does not sound very much like Jesus. Um, Jesus, at least by my read, tends to be sort of, a, most of the time at least, like a blessed are the poor, 
the last shall be first kind of guy, you know, in general. But he ends this parable with, for to all those who have more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. We're like, what? <laughs> Is this the same Jesus that, <laughs> you know? It's complicated, right? And let me just say, it's good and it's, it's okay that we have a scriptural text that is complicated, all right? What we do not want, what I don't want, is some anodyne, boiled down, sugar, saccharine-like, monolithic text, right? This scripture is full of human life and full of contradictions and full of challenges, and it's our job as people who follow Jesus, as people who love God, to try our best to interpret it for our context, right? And so what I try to do every week is stand up and offer one interpretation. I say all the time, I have one interpretation, but I'm just one preacher, and your interpretations are just as important, if not more important, than mine, all right? What Shauna did today was more important, as important as what I offer today. That's just the truth. If clergy, people, men have told you differently throughout your lives, you know, we must pray for their conversion, okay? <laughs> and that's okay. We're all on the journey. Your interpretation is just as important as mine. So I offer one interpretation today, um, but I want to say, like, I hope you will wrestle with this parable. Jesus does say this is a parable of the kingdom of God. So there must be something for us to learn about the nature of God here, or the nature and or the nature of human beings here. And so I was thinking about this week, and I just want to say, like, this is what I ended up with today. In my experience of human beings, most of us tend to be hardwired or constructed to be like this gardener. We have been given so much. We have been given so much. We have so much to offer. And yet we bury it in the effing backyard. You're like, I don't have a backyard. <laughs> so you bury it someplace else. Like you bury it in yourself. You put it deep in you, all the good that God has poured out into you. You bury it deep in you, you compartmentalize it, you repress it, you shame it, whatever. You put it way deep down. And there it is, buried in you. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Maybe uh, because, if we're honest with ourselves, even though we say that we believe God is love, down deep, because, what we've been, uh, because of what we've been taught, we actually believe that God is love is not true. We actually believe some other gospel that we have been taught, some false gospel that may have been offered to us by really well-meaning people, but it doesn't make it true. And so down deep, if we're honest with ourselves, so we sit with ourselves in prayer and actually think, who are you, God? What bubbles up from us is like maybe we have this fear that God is actually a tyrant, or God is an ass, or God is like a combination judge, jury, and executioner. And if you think that about God, then Lord knows I can understand why you might play it safe. Because if you think that's who God is, you're going to be staying inside those lines. You're not risking anything. You're keeping everything safe. Because if you don't and you mess up, then God's going to come and get you, right? Um, you can interpret this parable in a ton of different ways. But one way, to one little micro-interpretation is to notice in the story that it's not necessarily objectively true that the boss is a tyrant here. Did you notice... This is what we were talking about in staff this week. Did you notice that the gardener is the only one who had that perception of the boss? The maid and the jippy lube manager, who knows what they experienced, but whatever they experienced of the boss 
led them to like be like, hey, I'm going to try this crazy thing with this gift that you gave me. It's the manager, it's the, um, it's the gardener who says, I knew you, I experienced you, I perceived you to be a harsh and angry man, and therefore I, didn't, I was scared and didn't do anything with mine. So we can have compassion for that gardener, right? Like, he's not a bad person, she's not a bad person. Uh, she was just locked down because of the fear. That's one interpretation. A lot of us have been taught really harmful, um, I, I think really untrue things about who God is. We have been taught that God is a tyrant, or that God is a judge, jury, executioner. And so, would you just, today, for a moment, if that's where you are, just for a moment, would you trust me what I, when I tell you that in the name of Jesus Christ, God is not a jerk? Would you just trust me, just for today, maybe you have a hard time believing, just that God is not an ass out to get you? Maybe you can't believe that, but just know that you can't believe that and offer that to God. That's one reason we might get locked down. One of, one of my friends, uh, I was just out in Denver this week and um, doing a church plant consult. Denver is a beautiful city. You should go there. Um, my friend Jerry is a church planner out there, and he started this church called After Hours Denver. Uh, they meet during the week in bars uh, on, on the weeknights. And their slogan, one of their slogans is this. God doesn't suck. <laughs> That's one of the core slogans of their church. <laughs> I love that. They put that in bars, like, over the urinals, and people are like, people come because of that message. God doesn't suck. Uh, but it takes some time to, to learn that. It takes some time to unlearn that. Or maybe you've never thought, because you're a very good student, You've never thought, or maybe because you have a connection with God, you've never thought that God sucks. Maybe your problem is that you just think you suck. I was visiting with another church planter in, in a state, obviously I love church planters, and I was there to coach him, and he was really worried about church uh, plant project he was part of. The numbers were doing this, people weren't signing up for things, people weren't getting connected, you know, there wasn't a buzz. And we're sitting there at the restaurant talking about it, and his eyes, as he was telling the story, his eyes sort of welling up with tears. And he says, sometimes I feel like I suck. Sometimes I feel like I, I, don't, don't know, I don't know what I'm doing at all. Sometimes I feel like I'm not good enough to work for God. And I just reached over and like put my hand on his shoulder and sort of pull him across the table into a hug. And it's like, you do not suck. This is a big, crazy big job. Life is a crazy big job. It is really hard for all of us. It's new territory all the time. Of course you have no idea what you're doing. Welcome to being a follower of Jesus. Here's the good news. God loves folks who have no idea what they're doing. God loves unqualified people. So you and me together, let's find a shovel and let's go out in the backyard and dig that thing up and do something with it and see what happens. God gives us, y'all, God gives us the gospel. We say that every week. We are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But gospel is such a churchy word that sometimes we have forgotten what it actually is. Let me put it, let me put it in shorthand. The gospel means that God has given God's entire living to us. God has given God's entire worth to us. God has given us God's everything. To, and said, as God gives us God's everything, which is to say, God's very self, 
do something with this. But a lot of time, churches bury the gospel. You know, and we can have compassion for why churches might bury the gospel, right? They want to keep it safe and sound and pretty and polished. Or, I think more to the point, they want to keep themselves safe from any exposure to a truth that Jesus actually might want to change their lives, our lives, my life, right? And so we keep the gospel in a nice kind of rhetorical package, or we keep it in a nice, beautiful book, or we keep it sealed off. Because we don't want it to be like the explosion in our lives that it actually wants to be from God. Can I just say that Jesus, you know, how do you take your eggs, right? Uh, take them scramble. Uh, take them fry. Take them Sunday. Jesus does not take his gospel shiny and perfect, right? Jesus does not take his gospel like polished and without flaw. Jesus likes it. How does Jesus like his gospel? Jesus says, I take my gospel like worn out and bruised, and torn, and scratched up, and scraped. That's how I like my gospel, Jesus says. Grown, used, passed around, tattered, left on the bus, left on the train, given to people who don't know what they're doing. That's how I like my gospel, Jesus says. Amen? Y'all have heard me talk about my dad before. Maybe you haven't. My dad is a wild man. His friends, I'm not kidding you, his friends call him Wild Bill because he is a motorcycle-riding, firefighting, chain-smoking, heavy-drinking, always-partying, exhaustingly exuberant person. My dad pretty much left the church in his teenage years, and he has not been back for about 50 years in any meaningful way uh, to Christian community. But this year, for some reason, he and his wife have been walking down occasionally this little church in Midtown Memphis, their neighborhood that they live in, it's a church that is in, has been in decline. It's doing this. Average age is over 70. Nothing's been going on. But they've been popping in there for once, or, once in a while, spring and summer. And this summer, something started happening. All right? I don't know what it is. My dad really can't describe it. They were sitting in the pews, and something started happening. And my dad and his wife felt like called to get involved a little bit. And so, 50 years after leaving the church, because of this scra scrappy, scrawny little church's ministry, my dad has recommitted his life to Christ, which is just amazing. Let me just tell you, and he's actually become a leader in this church, right? Because they don't have anybody, so they'll take anybody, right? <laughs> but let me tell you this. My dad is recommitted to Christ, a leader in this church. He is still extremely scrappy. He is still rough around the edges. He is still chain-smoking, heavy-drinking. My dad says totally inappropriate things all the time. My dad is extremely embarrassing to be with in public, all right? They have asked him to be a leader in their church, all right? Uh, because, which is smart, because apparently God likes people like that, all right? So my dad is now a leader at this little church called Trinity United Methodist Church. And this past Tuesday morning, he's on the property committee. He and the pastor were trying to decide, as a sign of this new life that was happening, what they were going to put on the church sign out front in the church in Memphis, right in Midtown Memphis. And this is what they came up with. He texted me this picture. Searching, we are too. Spend one hour with us on Sunday at 11. Everybody's welcome. LGBTQ, black, white, Latino, Trinity Memphis. All right, I said, Dad... Don't forget Asian folks, and they're all, he's like, we didn't have that much room on the sign, right? Uh, now, they put this sign up. He, he texted me this picture, and apparently the pastor said to him when they were spelling this out, this is in Memphis, y'all. This is in Memphis, Tennessee, the Bible Belt. Uh, 
the pastor says, well, Wild Bill, I think we're going to get catch some flack for this sign in Memphis, Tennessee. And my dad's like, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> my dad has no idea what he's doing. And Jesus is like, I can work with that. Right? This is the kind of person who can spread the gospel. We have some fabulous leaders at Urban Village Church. And I just want to take a second to give thanks to them. There are so many volunteers, and there are also leaders who have said, I will head up these teams of volunteers to make this ministry here at Urban Village go. I just want to call them down. Some of them are here in this service. Some of them are going to be here in the next service. Some of them aren't here. But I'm going to call them down one by one uh, and just give thanks for them. Mick Reich organizes our stage managers. David Aguinaldo, and I think they're paid. So yeah, David Aguinaldo does set up. Mary Wilk, come on down. Mary Wilcock does like everything. Um, Tara Oding does kids ministry. Caroline Rendon and Lisa Nicholson and Katie Dunn do greeters. Come on down. Sabrina Keck does community care. Sarah Cordes does uh, meal ministry. Tracy McGee does prayer chain. Karen Ng coordinates the communion servers. Kobe, Jessica, and Britton are our worship leaders. Brian Straw heads up our personnel committee. Hannah Bayhoff chairs evangelism. Phil Cordes is a lay chaplain. Katie Peterson does social event. And then we have this group of people called the Vision Team thinking about where is God leading us in the future. So Luke Lusk does discipleship with adults, as does Liz Tung, discipleship adults. Lisa Zaragoza does discipleship with children. Daniel Kim does service. Valerie Vinzant does service. Come on down. Shauna Peterson talks about Church Without Walls, how to make a multi-ethnic and anti-racist community. Kurt Backlovic does that. Jessica Reynolds helps us think about starting and rooting new churches. Jody Blaylock helps us think about justice and faith in action. And Violet Ricker does the same thing. Kim Harvey does administration and systems. And Paul Ortiz and Jessica Lee are members of our all-site vision team. And they represent a whole bunch of other folks who do stuff. Can we just say amen for these folks? And I don't know about you. But if you are like me, when you think about your ministry with the poor, your ministry with evangelism, or your ministry with music, or your ministry with children or adults trying to get them connected to the salvation of Jesus Christ, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think I have no idea what I'm doing. Do y'all feel that way sometimes? You think, I don't know how I'm going to organize any of this. I don't know how we're going to make this work. We have no idea, y'all. We have no idea how to be bold, <laughs> inclusive, and relevant all the time. We don't, even some of the time. But Jesus comes along, y'all, and he says, well, friends, that's how it works. We don't know what we're going to do, and Jesus is like, that's how God works, right? God is a horrible businessman. God is totally risky. She hands over her ministry to people like you, like me, like y'all, who have no idea what they're doing most of the time, and says, I will use you. And you're like, wait, we don't know what to do. This is the hardest job in the world. And Jesus is like, it's the only one worth having. And Jesus says to us, to all of us, let's go out in the backyard and get a shovel and dig that thing up and do something with it and see what happens. In the name of God, amen.